0: Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well then, you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is March 16th, 2021, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everybody. As we do every week, I have on my podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Christian? Good to be here, Neil. How you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, we had kind of a, a false spring here. It's getting cooler yes. again, but uh, the trend looks good. I, I'm counting on... Uh, sort of a cyclical regularity of annual seasons to help us out there. So uh, that will be good for us. Um, As always, if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about in this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged which I put together with a bunch of people here at Hedgeye Risk Management. You can Google it, find out about it. If you subscribe, you'll be able to get our daily newswire, uh, watch my show on COVID-19, special interviews, uh, black books, and all the rest. Okay, with that, let's get into today's podcast. We have, uh, I think, plenty to talk about. The things I, I really wanted to talk about is kind of continuing where we left off with uh, the various kind of Biden initiatives. Last week we talked about stimulus and the um, the election reform package, the uh, HR one. This time we're going to talk about this big looming as kind of the next big thing, which is the infrastructure package, really enormous, and along with the related and kind of matching um, uh, tax package, right? Uh, This could be the big deal this year in terms of big economic uh, legislative initiatives. So we'll be talking a bit about that and, I don't know, the pros and cons and what's needed to get it through and what its impact is going to be on the economy and politics Uh, around the world. I think we have a few stories, Myanmar, some news there, some uh, kind of anti-China stuff going on. I think there's a follow-up what we talked about before some insights into party politics in Italy, uh, what's going on in um, Brazil. Is Lula da Silva coming back? And I think that's it. I think that's it internationally. And we have two uh, newswires that I wanted to do. Both involve mortality rates. So this is kind of hardcore demography here. One is on the uh, large rise, a 15% rise uh, in the death rate in the United States in 2020 and we'll uh, just ask the question uh, is that the largest rise uh, rise in deaths ever or is that just the largest rise since uh, the spanish influenza in 1918 but anyway a not exactly unexpected news and as i will argue uh, one could have actually calculated this from the official statistics but it is being billed as a scoop on what's coming out of the cdc an official announcement later this uh, later this week and then also kind of a counterpoint in terms of deaths is the news that deaths in japan actually declined year over year in 2020 so it's kind of interesting isn't it uh, christian i mean you know uh, uh one going stories. way up yeah the other one going down uh, what what's going on there um and uh we'll you know we'll, we'll have our, our broader reflections on that i want to talk a little bit about the whole concept of tight and loose cultures and what that has to do with uh, uh, pathogenic spread historically, and huge amount of academic research on that. So, why don't we just plunge right in? Uh, we can start with markets and indicators. That's, that's you know, when you hear that, you know it's, you're on, uh, Christian. That's my cue. That's your well, cue. Well,
1: markets, uh, markets have been up since our last podcast, in the last, five trading days. The S&P 500 is up 3.9% and the global Dow is up 2.1%. As for the VIX, volatility is down. It's at, uh, yesterday closed at 20.03. And I think today, you know, it hasn't closed yet, but it's been in the 19 range, which is a little bit lower than we're used to seeing.
0: Yeah. Uh, below 20, uh, you know, we might get back to, uh, you know, uh, late 2019 range, we get down to the single digits, right? That's when, uh, <laughs> you know, that's when you can do a lot of uh, cheap options trading and when everything gets uh, uh, really kind of dicey, right? Things can move right. fast. So uh, what about the indicators? What do we have?
1: All right. Well, I have a few indicators from the U.S. We have the Michigan Consumer Sentiment preliminary data from March a big rise here, you know, in February it came in at 76.8, but March it came in at 83. That is its highest reading since March 2020. And what's pushing this is, you know, stimulus being passed and the hope of more vaccines. I'll go on to retail sales month over month for February. That was down 3%. They're saying this has to do with weather, you know, what was going on in Texas. And similar to that, we have manufacturing production month over month, which was down 3.1% for February. And again, they're saying this is down because of the severe weather you had in Texas.
0: Right, right. And I'm sure industrial production will get hurt by that as well. Um, right. Interesting. I'm sure the uh, the passage of the, this enormous stimulus plan with the uh, immediate promise of uh, checks in the mail and all that, it, <laughs> that always does wonders uh, for consumer confidence. Um, so, so, uh, yeah, this is all very positive. I'll tell, I'll tell you one thing. And th- this came up in our, our COVID call last week. It worries me a little bit about, on the economy and that's, uh, the European union right now, uh, right now they're really suffering, um, uh, economically. And, uh, I think that's a consequence of their terrible performance, um, uh, uh With regard to COVID 19, a lot of this, of course, has to do with the very slow vaccine rollout in Europe. We've already covered that. Uh, You also have the big problem with uh, the spread of variants Um, in Europe. You know, first you had the kind of Spanish variant coming north into the rest of Europe. And now you have all of the major Western European countries now. Um, The UK variant is now dominant, right? So that really has spread. It's also spreading in the United States, but it, it remains at a much, a much lower level. Uh, but that has, a, you know, it's more transmissible. Uh, it has a higher R naught. It is more deadly, and it is somewhat more resistant, although not terribly. It is somewhat more resistant to uh, prior immunity with the wild type, as, as well as to the vaccines, which are obviously model off the wild type. So. This has led to ongoing lockdowns, and it's combined with sort of flagging stimulus. Not Certainly Europe doesn't have stimulus as a share of GDP on the order of what's happening in the U.S. And again, I come back to the lamentable progress on the um, the vaccine rollout. Uh, the EU is now at 11 doses per capita, only 3.3% fully vaccinated. The U.S. is now at 33%. Uh, doses per capita, and 12% of our population fully vaccinated. The UK, by the way, is number one among major countries. I mean, Israel is at the very top, but UK is at 39 doses per capita, although interestingly, only 2% uh, vaccinated because... uh, fully vaccinated, because they're counting full vaccination as both doses, right? Now, the UK, this is Boris Johnson's strategy, right? Give everyone one dose. And and I, I recall, actually, on, on uh, I think this was about three weeks ago on our COVID call, that the evidence actually does show that one Moderna or, you know, one uh, uh, mRNA uh, vaccination, I'm sure the same is true with, with AstraZeneca, which is slightly different construction, that that gives you... About ninety percent of the protection of both doses. So, if you're, it really is logical from a cost-effectiveness point of view, right? If you want to actually alleviate the most suffering in the fastest possible way, give everyone one dose, right? Right. Um, I think that uh, Moderna and um, uh, Pfizer, uh, you know, have about ninety-five percent effectiveness with two doses, but it's up around, you know, over 85 with only one dose. And we know that because we actually have the data. You can actually go and look. You can actually see where you are in those two weeks just after the first dose. And in fact, they actually, I can't remember which one, one of them actually had one uh, test where they only gave people one dose. And that was about, you know, what it came out to be. Also, it alleviates some of the side effects. Does anyone know who's actually taken the vaccine? It's the second dose that kills you. You know, the first dose kind of primes your immune system, but when you take the second one, your body's ready, right? <laughs> and you're flattened. Uh, I think the normal uh, the normal operating procedure is that people are sort of, uh, you know, take a day off from whatever they're doing for a day. That was my experience anyway, and I had Fevers, chills, you know, all that for about, I don't know, 18, 24 hours. And then, boom, it was all over, right? Uh, You're back to normal. So, and this is why we see Italy, Spain, France, Germany, uh, all continuing to have, you know, a lingering high new daily uh, case count, having a lot of trouble, you know, lowering the death count. You see what's happening in France now, in Paris, and hugely hammering for the first time, in many cases, Central Europe, right? Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary. So I was terribly saddened today, or maybe I thought it was very unfortunate to hear this latest news about how several countries in the EU, uh, and I think this, uh, who was this? This was Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Denmark, and Norway, are actually uh, stopping, all vaccinations with AstraZeneca. Why? Because there are some reports that cause blood clotting and no one was able to confirm that these blood clots are any more prevalent in vaccinated people than in the general population. In fact, AstraZeneca has been tested globally on large populations. I mean, just think of how many people have been vaccinated in the UK by it, for instance you would think that they would look at the evidence and say well that's ridiculous right i mean we're we're slow in getting people vaccinated why would we not do this but i think it feeds into this new eu collective pride sort of degenerating into a dysfunctional xenophobia. I mean, <laughs> and and you might want to talk about that with regard to, you know, what's happening in Italy, right? Where Draghi right. suddenly gets, you know, Mario gets a whole bunch of uh, support because he wants to, uh, you know, ban, ex- I, I think it was AstraZeneca, which one, uh, banning uh, exports of the vaccine to Australia. Right. Well, you know, it just has to do with, well, it's EU, right? And, and we're really particular about what we do. I don't know. That's, that's not helpful in my opinion. By the way, all the outside experts, including the WHO, are advising Europe to change course, but they're not. So, and I think another interesting thing is these initiatives are taken by the individual countries, not by the EU, right? And this is, again, the whole problem with the EU. I mean, the EU doesn't function well. It doesn't really function as an effective political unit. That's why they were so unsuccessful at the vaccine rollout. But it's the individual countries, right, that can immediately stamp their foot down and say, that's it. You know, we're going to stop. Of course, the EU can't prevent that. So there you are. Why does the EU uh, in a slow recovery matter to the US? I actually think it matters because it could heighten inflationary pressure in the United States over the next six months. You know, it was hoped that the huge stimulus that we had here in the U.S., uh, particularly with, you know, the the big new, you know, $1.9 trillion plan that was just passed, would flow in part abroad through trade flows, right? So you can say, well, there's a lot more stimulus than America needs, but it would flow abroad as income-rich Americans Spend more heavily on imports, right, so you just you know that would kind of flow abroad, which would tend to reduce aggregate demand at home, right so you know net exports would be uh, negative, and that would kind of take away from aggregate demand domestically. but think about it think about it, Christian. if Europe remains unable to produce u s import demand will just push up import prices and keep all that extra demand pent up in the u s right more inflation pressure in the u s Anyway, last week we did talk about the Biden stimulus package and the American Rescue Plan, well, a.k.a., right, the American Rescue Plan, and I came to the opinion, uh, just to recap quickly, the this was a political winner, and elements of, of this plan uh, are part of what may become a kind of striking new social policy, especially the pronatal policy of the expanded and cashed out child care tax credit uh this is the first time you really have pronatalism coming to america and being supported by both republicans and democrats in the senate although you know naturally the republicans in the senate couldn't vote for it but they are in, they are strongly on record as supporting those elements and um And then you have H.R. 1, the For the People Act, uh, which all had to do with kind of rejiggering how states and local governments do their, you know, manage their voting. In my opinion, this does raise constitutional issues. It's very unlikely to get passed. And in my opinion, it's a political distraction for Biden to pursue this. Now we're going to move on and talk about the Biden infrastructure package. Now, Just like the stimulus package, this is an enormous... Well, we don't really know what it is yet, so I should be careful. This isn't like, you know, this isn't fully formed. But these are the elements which we believe will come together into the next big thing, right, for the Biden administration for domestic policy. This is nearly $4 trillion over 10 years. Uh, Its it's, title is actually called the Build Back Better Plan or the Infrastructure Plus Plan or the Infrastructure Plus Plus Plan. Or the Green New Deal? I don't know which one do you, <laughs> which one do you like, Christian? Uh, the purpose is to increase economic productivity, regain tech advantage in key industries, uh, onshore manufacturing activity, and and uh, make uh, supply chains more secure. We've seen a lot of new awareness of that, right? With chip shortages, uh, you know, we can't even produce our own mask. We can't even produce our own testing reagents and so forth to battle climate change by pushing by pushing this country toward net zero carbon emissions and promote economic equality. So those are all the general goals. And this is what it is. Uh, it's a big deal. And I'm going to summarize it, try to summarize it very quickly. It's got an infrastructure component, just straight infrastructure, right? This is about 1.4 trillion. This is roads, bridges, transit, airports, uh, water, you know, things like water mains, uh, broadband, public school modernization, we're going to spend more on the Army Corps of Engineers, things like homes to the homeless, smart cities, and all the rest. It's got about $600 billion for clean energy, and that's everything you'd expect, right? Electric car charging stations, grid upgrades, retrofitting buildings, carbon capture, clean car rebates... (laughs) Cash for clunkers. You remember that one? Well, that might come yeah. back. We're going to turn the, uh, the, the I guess, the federal uh, fleet of vehicles will be turned into uh, electric vehicles, fossil fuel reclamation. They have something called an ARPA-C, which is kind of a, a um, it's going to be added to, there's already an ARPA-E, which is the uh, sort of energy ARPA, you know, kind of innovative R&D, you know, research on energy. Purpose C, which is kind of alternative energy, right? But it will include, apparently, the consensus is it will include research on a new generation of small modular nuclear reactors. And I think this is absolutely a good idea. Uh, as I've argued, I think, last year when we did talk about, you know, climate change, uh, there is no possible way, you know, realistically, we can seriously reduce uh, carbon emissions or practically reduce it without, some element of nuclear energy in there, and they we 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 are building these kind of new generation of modular nuclear reactors, which I think is a great idea. And I, I might add here that this is the way. Of course, China is is one of its primary strategies. China is on track to outproduce the U.S. in nuclear by 2030, ten years from now, and it will enormously up The U.S. obviously is. Just slightly declining decade over decade in, in nuclear output. China is expected if if we don't increase, China will be you know many times uh, the U.S. output of nuclear, you know by by 2050, 2060. I mean that is ultimately the real solution to completely clean energy as long as it's done in a smart way. I mean you have to get rid of the waste and, re- and reduce the danger and so on. Uh, but but clearly if if you're after that, this is something you should pursue. Okay, then there's industrial policy. I would just call this industrial policy stuff, manufacturing and workforce stuff. This is $400 billion uh, by American policies. Uh, minimum wage, I think they might throw in here again. You know, they're trying to get it passed again. Uh, paid leave. There's a lot of innovation and, and R&D, $300 billion. And this will be exploring new technologies like electric vehicles, 5G, artificial intelligence, something called ARPA-H which is, you know, R&D in healthcare technology. Um then they have something called caregiver economy which is another 800 billion dollars and that's more spending on healthcare workers and home and community-based care through Medicaid, opioid care, universal pre-K, child care and all the rest. Most of all of this. So that's it, right? Most of all of this is going to be additional federal spending. There'll be a lot of tax breaks and penalties, and you know, a lot through the tax code as well. But it will also involve changes in laws unrelated to taxing and spending. You know, things like changing labor and child care and environmental regulations, new, new laws on gig workers, and uh, obviously the minimum wage pro- provision, right? New credit reporting agencies, a homeowner bill of rights, cafe standards, new agencies like ARPA-H we just talked about. He, he wants to create something called a civilian climate corps, all the rest. okay. Now, I bring all that up because there is no conceivable way the Democrats can get this through the Senate via ordinary legislation. They would have to get, obviously, every uh, Democratic senator plus 10 Republicans. <laughs> That's never going to happen. Okay, so... This means they'll have to use reconciliation. It can only be as once per fiscal year. They already used one for fiscal year 2021. This would be the one they would use for fiscal year 22, right? So that would start in October. Reconciliation requires every provision to be rephrased as a direct spending and tax change instruction sent to the relevant committee. It can't be an appropriation, but that's okay. You can always rephrase, you know, spending or taxing as a as a direct spending or taxing measure, you need to sunset everything at 10 years, which is why all this big omnibus legislation just kind of falls off a cliff in 10 years, right? People wonder why that happens. Well, that's that's because of the nature of the reconciliation rule. But here's the key point. According to the Bird rule, you cannot include any law change that is extraneous to that is to say, not mainly directed at spending and taxes. So a lot of the extra stuff may have to be jettisoned. All that other stuff we're talking about, by changing regulations. And, and the big one, obviously, is minimum wage. I mean, that's by far the biggest kind of thing that in, impacts the economy that he wants to talk about. So much of this rests, as we've seen in the stimulus package, on Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough uh she recently ruled out the minimum wage hike uh They may come up with a new argument next time why it should be included uh they also have to do something by the way to um well let me just say on this on this uh minimum uh, on this uh parliamentary rule, the Senate can waive the parliamentary rule by simple majority. Uh, but this has rarely happened in the past, and they weren't willing to do it or even try to do it uh, when they passed a the stimulus bill. I think they just wanted to get that thing through, you know, and show that they were accomplishing things, and that was probably the right decision. Well, you might ask, Christian, how is America going to pay for all this new spending? Well, okay. Well, that's. Oh, yeah, I know, I was setting you up for that question. Well, that brings up the second package we're going to talk about, and that's all going to be included, you know, it's all going to be one huge reconciliation instru- set of reconciliation instructions. Well, that comes in Biden's equally vast new tax hike plan. So the main goal, he said, is to, you know, make sure that we fund what we're proposing. You know, we're going to be fiscally responsible Democrats. And also... The goal is that there should be no hikes, no tax hikes should apply to persons under $400,000 of uh, annual income. I don't know whether that's single or household or, you know, single is probably 200 to 400. Maybe it's 400, 800. I don't know. But anyway, that's, that's, their, that's their goal, right? So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to increase the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28%. That's going to partially repeal the uh, TCGA and you know Trump's plan in, in 2017. That's going to take. That's going to get you know according to their scoring 1.3 trillion. I'm sure a lot of uh, Republican dynamic scorers will disagree. The FICA payroll tax will apply to all incomes over 400 thousand dollars a year. All right, so you're going to be taxed up to everything. Interestingly, that sort of undermines some of the you know pay in pay out equity or at least the myth of equity of Social Security, right? You're paying in and you get back kind of, you know, something close to what you paid in, although that was never really true, right? Well, this will mean that's completely wiped out, right? So if you have, you know, Jeff Bezos or or uh, <laughs> or, or any of these other billionaires paying uh, FICA tax on all incomes, uh, so this could be a lot of money. In fact, that's going to be estimated about $1 trillion, course, people may shift income, right, to avoid that. Uh, they got to limit itemized deductions. That's going to be another $300 billion. Uh, capital gains is ordinary income when someone has an income of total income of over $1 million, um, or maybe just capital gains income over $1 billion. That's going to be $500 billion. Eliminate real estate preferences, all kinds of estate and gift tax reforms. Anyway, that's the rest of it. This too will be folded into the single reconciliation bill, along with the other stuff. So you can see how big this is gonna be, Christian. It's gonna be huge. There's gonna be a lot going on here in the in the summer, maybe early fall. We'll see. Yep. So let's try I don't know, let let's say they try this as reconciliation, right? Even so, getting all fifty Democrats on board is going to be tricky. The very act of overriding a filibuster, right, so if you're going with reconciliation, it basically means you're just writing off, you know, getting the other side to agree, and that tends to just undermine any possibility of GOP support. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin will uh, remain a problem on the minimum wage, um, and both the uh, By the way, both Senator Manchin and and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona have opposed getting rid of the filibuster. So filibuster is something we can talk about another day on another podcast. Actually, maybe we should talk about that next podcast. Talk about the history of the filibuster, right? But they are opposed to it. Uh, and you know, you to get rid of the filibuster, yeah, you. I suppose you can do that if you have uh, at least fifty votes. You know, you can't filibuster an anti-filibuster rule. <laughs> I mean, you know that uh, Congress cannot bind future Congresses. Let me put it that way. So Congress always has the right with a fifty, at least uh, fifty votes in a tiebreaker to change any law that Congress has made. So they could do it, but. But they can't, so they're going to have to go reconciliation, and that means the, the problem with Joe Manchin and and uh, possibly a few others on minimum wage. But certain Democrats may also object to various tax hikes, right? I mean, taxes involve pain, and different different senators may think this involves my state. And a lot of a lot of minds here, and in the end, of course, Congress is free to ignore budget neutrality. Uh, this is required to waive the paygo rule. So in the old days, that was harder because everyone worried about deficits. But today, in our brave new world of negative real interest rates and MMT, I think it might be easier. Right? You just say, "Well, okay, if you don't like that tax, let's just not include it." And what if it doesn't, you know, work out deficit neutral in the long term? Who cares about that anymore? Well, we'll see where the 10-year treasury rate is by late this summer. (laughs) That could say a lot about whether people are worrying more about extra deficits, right? So, I don't know. I mean, if you were to ask me what I think about this whole package, I think, in general, the idea is sound. I mean, America desperately needs an infrastructure overhaul. I mean, you know, everything that I see around me in terms of public infrastructure, and it hasn't been touched since the G.I. generation really walked this earth, right, and built it all. So, And everyone knows that. Every engineering study done on infrastructure knows that we desperately need an overhaul, and we just need it to be uh, reconfigured, right, to today's society. We also need some sort of intelligent industrial policy, and more generally, a a greater public focus on this country's longer-term agenda, which I think we've had very little of from, frankly, either party over the last 20, 30 years and most of these measures I will add are very popular with the public certainly infrastructure uh, programs are and they can attract support from populists on both sides of the political spectrum you remember it was Trump who brought back the the kind of the infrastructure agenda to right. the Republican party he didn't really manage to get much through there but he talked a lot about it i think for the most part biden steers away from the cultural left and aligns the plan toward middle American economic concerns. And I think, I think that also helps him. Do I like everything in it? Uh, No. Uh, I mean, on the clean energy front, I'm much more in favor of market oriented approach that changes basic prices through cross the board taxes, like, I don't know, gradually increasing an overall carbon tax and lets innovation follow its own course, the Democrats, as always, are fixated on handing out favors to individual technologies. This is, as we've seen abundantly uh, during the Obama presidency and so on, this is rife with opportunities for corruption. On health care, it's almost all additional spending on top of everything else we already spend on. I think this is we've exhausted that kind of reform. When our current system is already vastly too expensive and ineffective uh, as it stands, this makes no sense i mean if you want economic competitiveness we need to pursue getting more from less in our healthcare system okay we need to overhaul our existing system but you know it's always just more right you ever notice that it's never saying to all all of the medical specialties you know we're going to actually change the way you do business no 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 we're going to just add more on top of you right (laughs) um and on taxes uh you know, that's a big open question. MMT, uh, modern monetary theory, says we don't need to worry about raising taxes until inflation threatens. But, you know, that's the big question, isn't it? That's what everyone is waiting to see. If renewed economic growth substantially raises real interest rates, plus the inflation premium, plus the term premium over the next six months, we're in a whole new ball game and that's both that goes both for the fed and for the congress and at that point we'll be forced to balance giving more away with taking more from those who already have right we'll actually have to balance the books imagine that and that's when the politics will become much more interesting so that's my um that's my summary of, of that and i think now we can move on to um I don't know, some of these things I think you have been looking into, so I'll I'll be interested in hearing about it. This is moving around the world. We have a few items to talk about, right? Uh maybe That's we can right. start with uh Myanmar.
1: Well, this is just a quick update, Neil, but if you remember our last podcast we discussed how protesters had been surrounding the China embassy, saying that, you know, the whole military coup in Myanmar was China's fault. They could have stopped it. And we talked about the Milk Tea Alliance and this growing irritation with China in parts of Southeast Asia. Well, the protesters, I think, have stepped up their game and they have started burning Chinese textile factories to the ground. This is part of that same... Definitive.
0: I guess that's definitive. Yeah. Yeah, we don't like it. Okay.
1: And of course, this creates more of a headache for China, who never was a huge fan of this military coup in the first place, and now it's directly affecting them.
0: Yeah, but they took advantage of it because, you know, the, Myanmar became pariah of the West, right? So, therefore, right. China could move in, right? So, the, it, they, they kind of liked it. They just didn't like it when it, you know, when it caused disruptions. I mean, right? right. That's their problem. So, uh, where is that going to go? I mean, where do you think, uh, how is it? So, so what's going to happen there?
1: You know, I am not sure that, you know... More and more I read out every day, it seems that it's becoming more and more deadly. The protesters don't seem to want to stop and the military is getting more and more violent. I don't know if China is going to have to step in because there seems like the international outcry is getting bigger and bigger.
0: Oh, that'll that'll stop the international outcry, right? For China to actually bring its troops down there. (laughs) That'll quiet things. Now, is is Aung Suu Kyi, is uh, she still in prison?
1: Yes, she is still in prison.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, why don't we move around the world to Italy? I know you had something interesting on Mario Draghi and his new—I uh, wouldn't say leadership of the uh, the Democratic Party, but uh, he's sort of in charge there, right?
1: Right. I would say you know this is just an interesting update of what's going on with all the parties, and there's a lot of squabbling going on within parties. Uh, especially, you look at the Democratic Party; their technical leader. Nicola Zingaretti he recently resigned he said the party's in disarray everyone's fighting with each other I'm getting out and there's been a lot of talk that you know when the democratic party 10 years ago they set out these reforms that they were going to tackle like taxes and then changing the judiciary and making the bureaucracy more efficient and nothing really happened and these are the same policies that Draghi is now saying he's going to fix so a lot of people say this is Draghi's uh a representation of what they failed to do.
0: That was Matteo Renzi, you remember? Correct. And that was the uh and he was uh, soundly defeated. I mean, absolutely soundly defeated. You remember he put his entire political reputation on that uh, constitutional reform, which is this, you right. know, kind of technocratic thing that would sort of make the country less democratic, so that they could run through, you know, these reforms and and push through all these good government things, right? which may well be actually what what italy needs but of course the people wouldn't didn't agree to that and younger people especially roundly voted against it as well as the five-star movement which partly grew you know in the wake of that right, right. um so so where are they going to go from here and and how are so what's happening with the five-star that's their kind of coalition member and what about uh the right-wing parties i know that uh Lega is actually what? Has he actually formally joined the government? They haven't given him any cabinet positions, have they?
1: No, but they're you know they're generally supporting him, as it was seen. You know, Mario Draghi is quite popular in Italy, and they took the stance as a you know they have some criticism of him, but they generally support his leadership. And in the Lega party. Most people have been fine with this stance. You know, some of the hardcore anti-Euro supporters feel a little betrayed by Salvini. But really where the problems are coming in is the five-star movement. They're in this alliance with Draghi. Now, 15 senators and 16 deputies have left the party to form their own. They say Draghi is everything the movement should be against. You know, he represents the establishment. It goes against their populist upbringings. But, you know, the 5 Stars bringing in Conte, who's quite popular, which some people are saying is going to turn the party a little more technocratic. But they're still in a little bit of trouble, it seems.
0: I, I think so. The, the problem with the five stars is that they're more, at least their origins are more popular in the South. And the right. problem is they're anti-technocratic, but they also want redistribution. And if you have a technocrat who wants to be fiscally sound and actually, you know, kind of divide up the money more rationally, that tends to hurt the south right <laughs> southerners Southerners would prefer a less technocratic populist who would just you know wanna just loves the poor and wants to give them money and benefits right so I think that's actually the appeal of someone like um uh, Draghi to the north, you know which is which is Lega, you know which is the whole you know Piemonte and that whole industrial region with the small businesses. they like that aspect of the technocratic. Uh, but of course, Draghi, you know where he stands on all the cultural issues and so on. Um, uh, maybe they can overlook that for the for the time being. It's going to be very interesting. And I think the uh, the the open question has always been: Italy remains a very dysfunctional economy, meaning it's just hugely underperformed. You know, even before they went to the euro, even before the currency conversion. You know, throughout the '90s, uh, throughout you know the '00s, and, and and the last ten years, and can you, you know, so much is structurally wrong with the system. I mean, there's a lot of the economy which is off the books. Um, tax enforcement is very spotty. There's, it's totally overregulated. Almost impossible to start a new business. I mean, it just it's 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 a very dysfunctionally led economy and with an enormous youth unemployment. I mean, young people have just given up, you know, getting a job until they can, you know, wait around and, you know, work for nothing for several years, you know, live with their parents. I think, you know, one one solution is, yeah, bring a technocrat in there, but the problem is can a technocrat do anything all that fundamental, right? I mean, look at look where Renzi got when he tried to do a constitutional referendum. Is it better to bring in a populist who can just completely overhaul everything, right? Because he has this enormous wave of just, you know, unthinking, emotional, popular support and then create something out of the rubble. Well, that's didn't I didn't intend to put it that way, but, you know, I mean, <laughs>
1: that's but, dark, Neil. <laughs> but, well,
0: but you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's, da- mean, it's dark, but do you want to go on another two or three decades like this? I mean, that's what I always said about the the Greek solution, you know. What did Greece get by staying in the euro? Well, you know, 10 years of negative GDP. I mean, you know, that's what you go by, you know, going along to play along. Maybe it's better to actually foment a crisis and then actually, you know, actually sort of rebuild things from a new basis. All right. Uh, What else do you have?
1: Let's go to Brazil where we have an interesting story about the possible political return of Lula da Silva. Uh, if give you a little bit of background, Lula, he was a former president of Brazil from 2003 to 2010. He was left-wing populist and he was relatively popular but polarizing. You know, his supporters would say he brought millions of people out of poverty. His detractors would say he is the shining image of corruption and partisanship. Now, after he left the presidency, he was convicted of money laundering charges under these nicknamed car wash corruption investigations. And part of this conviction meant he could never run for political office again. Well, this week there was a surprising turn of events. A Supreme Court justice in Brazil has annulled his prior convictions. And it's based on these strange technicalities that... Uh, The court, the tritum, was acting outside of their jurisdiction. Now, technically, this is going to have to be confirmed by the rest of the Supreme Court, and there is questions whether there'll be a second trial. But if this stays annulled, he would be able to run for president once again. So this has people wondering, is he going to be Bolsonaro's big challenger next year? Uh, He hasn't confirmed whether he's planning on running, but he has been making... Quite a few bolsterous anti-Bolsonaro speeches. You know, he's going criticizing about his COVID response, about the economy. And recent polls show he still has quite a bit of popularity. One poll said if the election was today, Bolsonaro would get 32.7% of the vote and Lula would get 27.4%. Now there's 19 months until election day, so a lot can change and Bolsonaro might have another populist opponent.
0: Yeah, you have populism of the right to populism of the left. Um, right. Uh, Lula, it's interesting. I think a lot of the young voters today, I mean, anyone really in their, you know, 20s, 30s, early 40s, um, grew up getting advantages from the Bolsa Familia. That was the huge child benefit that, that uh, Lula introduced all over Brazil. It was incredibly popular, right, Uh, you know, and it was due to that that you suddenly had much better nutrition and education for these families. It was given out regardless of how they spent it, and and, um, it's hugely important in Brazilian politics, sort of the legacy of of that pro-family policy. Uh, It's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, Don't count on, you know, uh, Bolsonaro not to shoot himself in the foot, you know, uh, and (laughs) create opportunities but he's a he's a huge name he's a legend i would say the only maybe drawback is what is he you know 73 74 something like that
1: 75
0: yeah. 75 yes. Yeah. so but you know hey we're we're used to uh, gerontocracy today you know <laughs> i don't think i mean i don't know i don't know if that's a problem or not so all right well let's move on to our two kind of demography stories uh we have one this is This was reported actually the it was in Politico uh, that uh, CDC is about to announce that uh, COVID-19 triggered a 15% uh, estimated spike in the mortality rate for 2020. And the question is, this jump would mark the largest single year increase in the rate since 1918. And it turns out Politico is one of a, a number of major news sources kind of scooping this report, which is delivered by the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. So, you know, that's that's a big shift. Uh, we measure age-adjusted deaths uh, per 100,000 people, and that's going to rise apparently from 715 in 2019 uh, to apparently it's going to rise to 822 in 2020. That's a big rise, right? <laughs> Some news outlets have been uh, leading with headlines screaming that 2020 was the deadliest year in U.S. history, pointing out that, you know, this is more deaths than last year. Uh, I will point out the obvious fact, I guess it should be obvious, that this is really without significance because the total number of deaths rises almost every year in America. <laughs> the total, you know, the growing size of the population now adds about, you know, 0.5% each year to the raw death count. And the aging of the population adds another one point five percent each year. Now it is true that there is some decline in the age-adjusted death rate uh, due to you know lifestyle improvements, healthcare technology, or whatever, but that's seldom, if ever, enough to overcome this margin. And in fact, as as we've reported, uh, Christian, over the last decade, uh, the age-adjusted mortality rate is actually. Uh, has actually risen in many of those years. We have very little net improvement over the over the 2010s, right? Uh, particularly due to the non-elderly population, which in some ways is getting more sick. One more, uh, you know, indictment of our of the efficacy of our current healthcare system. But you know, we we won't go into that here. Uh, let's run some numbers. In 2019, there were uh, 2.85 million total deaths, and growing that trend to to 2020 and assuming no change in age-adjusted mortality, we get to 2.91 million deaths. So using that number as a baseline, we can calculate the impact of a 15% rise in age-adjusted mortality. Uh, That would take us to 3.348 million deaths, okay? Which is about 437,000 more than we would otherwise have expected. That's a lot of deaths, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you could fill several Super Bowl stadiums with that, okay? Uh, this number actually sounds very plausible to me, and in our report I actually go through the calculation. Uh, this works out actually if you do if you run through all the math, the works out uh, almost exactly to uh, what you'd get if you looked at the CDC's uh, excess mortality, right? So in other words, if you look at the the number of deaths that are higher than expected over the past three years and you calculate that, you come out to almost exactly uh, the same figure. In fact, you come up to with, I don't know, something like 15.1% rise in the mortality rate. So I I think this is right on, And, and in fact... Uh, we could have made, you could have estimated this on the basis of numbers that have been out for weeks. (laughs) So there's nothing really a big scoop in this number. So I guess what I'm trying to say. So if you look now at that 15% increase, right, about 13% of it, 378,000 is accounted for uh, by excess deaths related to COVID-19. And this is, uh, according to the official, you know, they have coroner's reports, right? And confirmed, tested, positive, or believed by physicians to be related, right? So COVID-19. That leaves another 2%, uh, 59,000 deaths unexplained. So you might ask a question, how do we explain the unexplained deaths? Now, one easy hypothesis, which I often explore in our COVID report, right, is that these are uh, COVID-related deaths that simply weren't diagnosed or verifiable for the coroner's reports, Uh, This would imply that actual COVID 19 deaths have been running about 15% higher than the official COVID 19 totals we see in the newspapers. And that actually is very plausible. In fact, it's at the low end of the range of undercounts we're seeing in most other high income countries. So I think that that's very plausible. There are other explanations. Um, The mortality from other causes undoubtedly shifted as well in 2020. And we do know some of these, right? Uh, mortality from drug overdoses almost certainly rose significantly in 2020. That's a a terrible story. I think we have yet to actually do a story on that. Isn't that right, Christian? We're gonna we're gonna do a story on that. But it looks like that might have risen about 12 or 13 thousand. So that's not a good story. We're gonna cover that. Turns out that motor vehicle accidents did rise in 2020. Astonishing. People drove like maniacs in Q3 and Q4 of last year. Uh, That was another 5,000 deaths. And homicides, uh, a very rough estimate, maybe something like 10,000 extra deaths, right? On the other hand, mortality from other diseases almost certainly declined. And and particularly, I have in mind here, respiratory diseases. And here, I think, uh, you know, these numbers, uh, Christian, consider that the flu kills an average of 30,000 annually. Do you remember when President Donald Trump actually made that point <laughs> in a presidential address? You know, who knew that the flu killed 30,000? I remember. He just couldn't believe it. I, did you know that? I didn't know. I remember, I remember him talking about it. But here's the thing, Christian. This year, the flu has almost entirely disappeared. In fact, it almost completely disappeared from Australia in the Southern Hemisphere during our winter, right? And, Or I should say during their winter, excuse me, know, our summer. Uh, and then it, it has almost disappeared this year. Time will tell how CDC will parse statistics, but it could be that uh, COVID-19 undercount actually was higher than 50% and the uh, death rate from other causes actually declined. We'll have to see that. We, we, you know, in our report, we go on and talk about whether or not this is higher or lower than uh, uh, 1918. Interestingly enough, if you're just talking about a rise in the mortality rate, it's about on par with what happened to uh, 1917 to 1918. Uh, A lot of that is because, well, you know, the the total number of deaths, absolute number, you know, 450,000 was about the same as the total number of deaths in nineteen eighteen from Spanish flu, although our population back then was, you know, less than one third of what it is today. So obviously the mortality per capita was much more devastating, right? On the other hand, our mortality rate back then was about three times higher than it is today, right? So you needed a much higher rise in per capita deaths to give you a fifteen percent hike. You see what I mean? So it's interesting Actually, if you're just looking at percentage hike in the mortality rate, oh, my God, that's look, those are the games you can play with numbers. Uh, And in my opinion, percentage changes of percentages have questionable meaning. Whenever it talks about a percentage rise in a rate, you know, always kind of uh, always be careful with what follows. Right. So there it is. Uh, In my opinion, we don't need to claim that it's worse than 2018. Clearly, 2018 was a much worse scourge by any relevant per capita measure. I mean, COVID-19 in 2020 was bad enough. We don't need to make it worse than it was, right? All right, so let's move on now to talk about Japan. A completely different thing happened in Japan, right? And this news just came out. Uh, in 2020, Japan recorded one point. Four million deaths approximately. But if you look at the exact number, that is 9,300 fewer than the year before. In other words, Japan has experienced negative excess mortality, right? <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that would be something uh, if we experienced that. And this is remarkable. Why? Because Japan was obviously uh, hit early by COVID from Wuhan. It has a very large elderly population, which are more vulnerable, and its winter season is relatively long, cold, and dry, right? So you think, perfect target. Nevertheless, Japan has seen very few deaths from COVID-19. And to be exact, Japan has thus far recorded only 65 COVID-19 deaths per million people. Let's compare that, Christian, to you know, deaths per million in Europe and North America. In the UK, 1,828 deaths per million. In the US, 1,600 deaths per million, right? That's about, what, 30 times higher than the per capita death rate in Japan. I mean, that's amazing. So clearly Japan has fared much better than most Western countries. But on the other hand, Japan actually stands at the high end of mortality rates among high-income East Asian countries. I mean, think about South Korea, for example. COVID-19 deaths per million were only 32. Hong Kong, 27. Singapore, 5. Taiwan, (laughs) 0.4. per million, and that's right. Taiwan, which was hit earlier than any other country, Uh, outside China. It was hit almost immediately by uh, uh, business travelers and so on coming out of Wuhan, right? It was immediately hit by it, has suffered only 10 COVID-19 deaths, total, total 10. So that leads us to a broader question. Why have so many Asian countries controlled the disease so much more effectively from the West? And there's a lot we could talk about here, but I think a simple way to think about it is it boils down to three reasons strict public health measures. Uh, Most of these countries wasted no time in their government response to the pandemic. You look at China, Vietnam, Hong Kong, quickly enacted draconian lockdowns. South Korea and Taiwan poured money into testing and, and contact tracing. They've already dealt with SARS in 2002. They were already primed for it. They were already prepared for a swift and organized response. I think the next thing is high acceptance of face masks. Uh, not only laws, but just a culture uh, that, that easily adapts to universal face mask wearing. And face masks, in fact, have been have long been a staple in many Asian countries. Uh, people wear them during flu seasons. You wear them when you're ill. They, they're they even in Japan. They're even fashion accessories. I, I know uh, Japanese young women say it makes life easy. I don't have to put my makeup on in the morning. I mean, they, look, I mean, <laughs> a lot of reasons why you like face masks. Um, And I I actually, I think my last COVID report, I actually outlined how many studies did I go through, uh, Christian, uh, talking about the huge correlation between, you know, face masks and lower death rates, both internationally, uh, by state within the U.S., by death rate per day, and even by county within the U.S. And, you know, several different studies. But look, I mean, there's some people who just won't accept you know the evidence, no matter what, but anyway uh face mask is actually even more than vaccines is one of the most absolutely certain things uh, to stop the spread right if it dared to uh if it dared to uh, uh, universally uh but the other reason is cultural differences uh national cultures can be arrayed on a spectrum of formality and informality from Huggy kissy countries like Italy, Spain, and Brazil, right? Uh, and that's at one extreme. To the most Confucian East Asian countries at the other. Um, East Asian people tend to be more distant in their personal interactions. You know, Japanese will bow in greeting, uh, not necessarily you know handshake or touch. So this this is interesting. And, and when you look at it, you remember the big problem early on in South Korea. Uh, was a vast and atypical group hugging event conducted by an evangelical Christian congregation in the southern city of Daegu. Do you remember that? Yep. And, and suddenly you had this huge infestation, right? The same thing actually happened in Iran when you had the uh, kind of the Shiite festival and all the Iranians came together to, to hug each other. Well, you know, when you when you have sort of a more formal culture which doesn't do that kind of stuff, you're helped out. So, You know, in Japan's case, uh, culture and masks were the most important in mitigating the pandemic's impact. Interestingly, unlike most of its neighbors, Japan actually did not do a lot in the way of public health measures. Um, You know, not a lot of testing and tracing, not even a lot of forcible laws, you know, and, and citing people and so on and tickets for not wearing a mask. You don't really have to do that in Japan. But they were able to avoid the death toll of that. I think one of the reasons why Japan did not perform as well as these other countries, they really didn't pursue any of the more, you know, organized public health efforts, right? But that leaves one last question. Why did deaths actually go down? Well, what we just talked about in the United States should offer a clue, right? What did we say about influenza? Hmm. Well, haven't we seen influenza virtually disappeared? That's another thing, right, that universal face mask wearing really does, uh, and also does so, does, that's one beneficial byproduct of social distancing. This has been true in Japan as everywhere else. From this September through December 2020, there were only 383 reported influenza cases in Japan. The average number of flu cases over those same months in the previous five years, average in just those months over previous five years, 90,000. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, I'll say. Whoa. So when Japan officially publishes mortality statistics uh for twenty twenty, look for a decline in non COVID respiratory mortality as a significant driver of the fall uh in deaths. I think that's what we will see. You know, this is one thing I want to come back with and we might talk about it. I've been very fascinated by this. I've been doing a lot of reading and there's a whole literature actually. I mentioned You know, tight versus loose cultures. And there's an enormous academic literature on why certain countries have tight cultures, others have loose cultures. You know what? And it turns out to be have both a cause and effect relationship with epidemic disease. You know, historically, because tight cultures tend to be places which have experienced a lot of. Of you know parasitical and and you know uh, bacterial and 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 uh, virus based epidemics historically, and uh, there's very close correlation in fact, and this has been tested many many times. I was fascinated to see this literature; it it, it goes back 30 years, and it has led to a lot of interesting research on tight versus loose cultures. Um, you know, one aspect of a tight culture is kind of the more collectivist aspect, right? Tight cultures, they tend to follow orders, rules, they're more compliant, they're easier to organize. We see tight cultures, uh, particularly Confucian societies, for example, lower crime rates, more synchronization. I mean, all the clocks are synchronized. Believe it or not, all this stuff has been studied among countries. You know, how much are all their clocks synchronized in public places, for example. Of course, today it's all done by satellites, a little different. But uh, a lot of this research is interesting. And the other is more... Uh, personal behavior. Tight cultures favor favor the in-group. They're suspicious of outsiders. Uh, they're more xenophobic. They practice more purity in rituals of food preparation and socializing. They believe there are right and wrong ways of behaving, right? And in, in, in very particular ways, right? There are very particular ways it's right and wrong to do so. And they strongly believe that their group actually adheres to these, right? Now, loose cultures are very different, right? They... <laughs> They're very inviting of, of, uh, of other people. They're not particularly xenophobic. And they tend to have advantages that tight cultures don't. Uh, they tend to be more creative, for example. They're more flexible and adaptive. And believe it or not, we've done actually studies on, you know, uh, uh, levels of creativity, you know, to sort of think your way quickly out of a problem. Actually, these are higher in loose cultures. If anyone is really interested in this, there's actually one of the leading researchers in this field for the past thirty years is uh, an academic named Michelle Gelfand, G E L F A N D, and she wrote a book not long ago called "Rule Makers, Rule Breakers: How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World." Right. So interesting, you know. If you want to pursue that, we may have occasion later on to do that. You know, we'll we'll see. I don't know. What do, what do you think, uh, Christian, on tight and loose cultures? I mean, look, I mean, there's no question that, you know, tight cultures have great drawbacks, you know, when it comes maybe to right. creative creativity and innovation. But boy, when a pandemic hits, you begin to see the, the plus side of tight, tight cultures.
1: Right. I would say, yeah, give me I, some insight. I would just say, hopefully we can talk about this more later, but I'm very fascinated about how it plays out in the U.S. on a regional level between the South and the West and the North?
0: Well, we already know, actually. Uh, Believe it or not, that's already been studied. And uh, it turns out that uh, in most measures of tightness, per se, the South is by far the most, you know, tightest states, right? Right. So um, and you look, I mean, it's all kind of the Bible Belt area. But you ask all these questions about right and wrong ways. You know, there's a good and a bad way of doing things, and all this, and 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 sort of, you know, the, there's a, there's a there are insiders, there are people who we trust, there are outsiders, and so on in terms of groups. That's absolutely true. On the other hand, there's a, there's another aspect of tightness and looseness, which is individualism versus collective. And interestingly, that kind of cuts the other way, right? Because the South is more of an honor culture, right? It's very individualistic. It all has to do with defending your own honor. So you find, interestingly, this is what you don't find. For instance, in East Asia, although the, the southern United States is, is tight culturally, Uh, It has, you know, higher crime rates, (laughs) higher divorce rates, a lot more kind of, you you say, sort of um, social dysfunction, you know, by a lot of uh, by by a lot of sort of social measures. Right. Um, Drug use and so on. Now, it's it's interesting. This is why I actually think that it's a very mixed record, you know, by state. Uh, For instance, if you go up to New England, you will find, you know, a looser culture, you know, by the classic, you know, Gelfond. You know, tight versus loose culture. You know, metric or or uh, you know, instrument that that she and others have developed, and that that tends to mitigate against you know success in dealing with epidemics. On the other hand, they are more collectivist, right? They're more likely to um, to comply with you know community rules, right? And so this has to do a lot with sort of the regional origins of different local cultures. Um, in the United States. If anyone's really interested in that, there's a, I mean, and I mean really interested because it's a very, very thick book, but it's absolutely wonderful if you, if you want to get into this much better than any of the other popular versions about regional differences in the United States. There's a wonderful book by David Hackett Fisher called Albion Seed, and it's on why all the different regions of the United States from the very beginning, particularly focuses on the difference between. The New England region, uh, the kind of the middle region in the United States, which tended to be much more diverse, you know, a lot of Quakers, and a lot of non-English, and then the Chesapeake region, and why they came from very different places. And from the very beginning, they embraced very different cultural systems. And along that, they had different different systems of courtship, different systems of law. They were religiously very different from the start. So there you go. All right. I think we've called it a day. As always, thanks for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. We'll make sure to talk to you again next week. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com, or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration, that's H-O-W-E, Generation.
1: This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your Financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at hedgeye.com.